I don't have slides for you tonight, so I really suggest you grab a Bible close to you if you do have one or open up your phone and I do apologize about that. I was in a conversation this afternoon with somebody who went over for uh, lunch to people and the conversation just was very important and it carried on and on and on and only got to the church fairly late and we've got lots of verses here today so I thought well hopefully you'll have mercy and read your Bible with me tonight. We are in Acts chapter 17. We are, we, we dealt last week with the, the apostles in Berea. And the, the Bereans were incredible people. They had, who remembers? They had open minds. Yes, they had open minds, the text says. Well, the Greek says, it doesn't explain it that well for us when we read it, but they were, they were willing to learn. They were open to the truth. But also, they had something else that was open. They had open Bibles. Because they tested what Paul said with the Scriptures. I'll, let me be very real with you. I'm not, I mean, I, I, I realized it again this afternoon. And I didn't know that it's like this. I remember at some point in the past... Um, when we were talking with the church here and we're still in South Africa, Brother Raleigh asked me, like, what is the denominational thing there where, where, where we are at? You know, and it wasn't such a big, you know, it wasn't like such a big issue that it's here. But I've picked up, yeah, I meet people from different churches. You know what, what I've learned here from people in different churches? It's like they don't know their Bibles at all. That's, the Church of Christ is unique in this, I think. That's what I'm starting to pick up. People study their Bibles. Like, we, we really do. And I think the average Christian out there that goes to some Mennonite church or that church or whatever, they don't actually know. They've got no clue. And they believe a lot of stuff that they, that's just not in the Bible. I realize that today. So we can feel honored that we are part of a church that we, we do it by the book. And, and I find it interesting. I would assume that all Christians or people that call themselves Christians would say, yeah, we only do what the Bible says. If it's in the Bible, yeah, we, then we follow it. But most people don't actually do that. They believe in a lot of stuff that's not in the Bible. Um, so we are in a, a, a real, we've got a really good mindset that we can be proud of. Um, we follow what Paul says. Do not go beyond what is written. If it's not in the text, then, you know, then it's not in the text. And um, well done for that. I just wanted to point out with this as well, open minds with closed Bibles is a terrible combination. Because if you've got an open mind, that's great, but you don't go to the Bible for your answers, you're going to follow whatever. Similarly, open Bibles with closed minds is also a waste of time. <laughs> okay, because... Your Bible can be open if, you're not, if your mind isn't open to take in what it says. You're also just wasting your time. So you've got to have both of those. And the Bereans teach us so well. Open mind, open Bible, you'll find the truth. A few questions for tonight. Because um, if you remember at the end of um, the Berean saga, um, Paul is brought to a major city, Athens. Right, and so Paul is in Athens, and that's where we are tonight. And as we, this is a very famous piece of text, and so it wasn't difficult to put, pull some thoughts out of it. 
Um, and, and we can just basically skim over the surface, and maybe we can have some conversation tonight, if you want, everybody except um, um, Titus. You're welcome to Titus, to just nod your head and agree with everything. No, I'm just joking about it. Uh, some questions. Do we exist because God needs something from us? Like in all of eternity, God decided I'm going to create because I need something from these people. Is it possible to worship a God you don't know? Tricky question. Does God determine when and where we live? Um, and if He does, why? If God decides where I live and when I live, why? And then lastly, why does Christianity exist? Like, wh why does this religion exist? I had a wonderful conversation with the lady there at the back today that um, is not sure whether she wants to be a Christian or not. And it was, it, it's always refreshing talking to people like that because it forces you to, to think, well, why am I a Christian? Why does Christianity exist in the first place? All right. Now, let's go to the text. Let's read um, chapter 17, verse 16 to 21. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, who is he waiting for? Timothy and Silas, yes. So, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, I think he was bored, by the way. He was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So, he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happen to be there. It's interesting that when we read through these stories, it's always in a synagogue or in a marketplace. And then the one sits by the river, right, with, with Lydia. And who lived in the, who operated in the marketplace? There's all the peasants and scoundrels and whatever. Verse 18 says, a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? This guy's babbling on here. He seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Arapagus where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears and we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians, this is a very funny verse for me, by the way. All the Athenians, in brackets, and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing <laughs> but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. I think Paul is in Athens here, and I think he's bored. And so he's, he's uh, waiting there for Timothy and, 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 and Silas, and, and he says that the text says that he was greatly distressed. Greatly distressed. And what was interesting for me when I looked at this word here in the Greek, it's exactly the same word that I used this morning in the lesson that is used in Hebrews chapter 10, where it says that we need to provoke one another or stir one another on towards love and good deeds. The exactly same Greek word. Paul is provoked in his spirit. He's stirred in his heart by these idols that he sees because he realizes that Athens is a unique place. It's different than Berea, different than Thessalonica, because this place is full of idols. This is a diverse religious place. It's like the hub of pagan Greece. 
We read in verse 22, we're going to get there a little bit later, that this place was unusually religious, unlike the other places. And Paul seems to be a little bit alarmed. Maybe the battle was going to be harder to convince these guys. Now, what I found interesting is that what did they accuse him of being? A babbler. What do you think a babbler is? And don't point to your husband. I mean your wife. This is a babbler. Interesting Greek word. Spermulogos. <laughs> literally, sperm, logos. Seed, word. That's literally what the Greek word there means. And this is what it means. One who collects seed. One who collects seed. And what that refers to is one of two things. Either you are a gleaner. You are a person that collects seed from, the left, uh, from what's left over. You're a poor person. You're a person who hangs around in the marketplace and catches the seeds of the people who's walking past. You, you are gleaning off what is left. You're a poor person in the streets, in the marketplace. But that word is also used in reference to a bird that you get in the marketplace that is eating seed. And it's some of those, you might have seen some of these annoying birds. They go around and they, they just sniffle everywhere and pick up stuff. And they'll make these annoying sounds. I, 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 there's not a lot of birds in America, which is unique for me. But in South Africa, you get some of these birds. They always just make a noise. They're annoying. You just want to shoot them and chase them away. But they're always coming to nibble stuff. So it's, it, and so maybe that's what they're thinking. They're looking at Paul. They, they seem that, like somebody that's like a bird that makes a noise. And he's just hanging around here. It's actually just irritating. Or he looks like a gleaner, like a poor person, like a nothing. You know, when I, when, I, when I came to that realization, I thought to myself, in my mind, Paul is the most powerful man walking in that city. Most powerful person, filled with the Holy Ghost. He's come from all over the world, chased out of every city because of the power that is in his message. And he gets to this town, and what do they think when they see him? This gleaner and nothing, like a bird eating seeds of the ground. Don't be ashamed of looking like a nobody if Jesus is in you and you're serving him. Paul is a no-name brand. In South Africa, we have, like, a, like you have a Safeway, we've got a, a place called the Pick and Pay. And a checkers. Checkers is also another shop. And those shops, they have their own brands. They call it the no-name brand. Like the generic. Do you get it here as well? Oh, yes. Yes. Paul is like a no-name brand. He's standing there in Athens. He's nothing significant. He's not a great stoic philosopher. He's a nothing. But these people do not know who he really is. And you know what? He doesn't care. He doesn't care being a nobody because he lives for Christ. He himself says, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives within me. The life I live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. He doesn't care if people don't know who he is. He doesn't care. It's not about him. He just wanted Jesus to be in him, to work through him, and he wanted to be less. He died to Christ. And here he is a peasant. And you'll see tonight at the end of this story, in actual fact, we already see in the text, he's standing before the legal council that ran the city of Athens. 
How is it possible that the peasant, the, the, the seed-plucking little man that looks like a nobody can end up in front of the Arapagus, the council on Mars Hill that runs the city? There was something in his mouth that intrigued people. God will turn you into somebody for him. The text says that, and, and it appears a few times here, that he is he's saying strange things. And he's talking about strange gods. Did you pick that up in the text? That's, that's like, hey, you, you're talking interesting things here. Strange things. Strange gods. What, why do they say that? Well, because you speak about Jesus and the resurrection. I guarantee you, these people have never heard of something like this. They're very religious. Idols everywhere. They've never heard of a guy that dies on a cross that's a nothing and then gets resurrected from the grave. It was unique for them. It's different. Now, here's the key. It's different for them when they listen to this, but it's not weird. It's different, it's not weird, but it's strangely intriguing. That's what I've picked up about the gospel. It's, it's, it, it, it shocks, it, 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 it's intriguing, but it's like, you, you can't just push it away, and, and, and you don't know what to do with it. You, you sort of want to hear more. There's, there's some power, there's really some power to it. So they're, they're so intrigued by this that they tell him, listen, we want you to come to the hill of Ares. Or Mars Hill. We want, you, we want you to come and speak to the council. Because there's something intriguing by what you are saying. He preaches strange things about strange gods. The, the Greek utilizes the word xenos. And we know xenos, right? Where we get xenophobia from. Foreigner. Stranger. Strange teachings of a strange god. It was a unique and a foreign teaching. Today... Christianity is not a foreign teaching. We could say that Christianity is a native teaching. It's a teaching that came with the West. And that gives us a whole host of different challenges that we've got to deal with. I think it was, I think it was so exciting for Paul to bring in this teaching, this unique teaching into a world that didn't know about it. And what's hard for us is that people know about Christianity. Yeah, yeah. This lady at the back today, she told me. Yeah, I've been in churches my whole life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've heard it all. It's so hard to convince somebody like that, that Christ is good if she's heard so much about Him, but, but seen so little of its power. And to get that done, we really need a lot of, a lot of prayer. The um, Athenians, um, I've got no idea what I was thinking here. Um, yeah, this, this is the thing. Uh, this last section here where it says, um, that they did nothing except exchange ideas. That reminds me very much about universities. A lot of universities, oh, those professors, they just talk and do nothing. Eh? And I've spoken to you about this before. I used to, I've sat in a lot of classes. And these professors get so excited about ideas. But it leads nowhere. It's just ideas. It's like some people, some people like, like Wes gets a, the dopamine squirts into his brain when he climbs a mountain that could possibly kill him. And then you get lecturers, <laughs> you get lecturers, they, they get an idea, a philosophical idea, and it has the same effect, you know, as it does for Wes. And there's a lot of that going on in our world. And to be honest with you, to a large extent, that's destroying our world because, you know, when, when you hang, around, hang out in places where you just think a lot of stuff and think about new ideas, but you detach from reality, you start coming up with strange ideas. And especially at universities, 
that's carried over to students and that really has an impact in, in the world. That's why there's a lot of strange things going on in, in our world. It's birthed out of the universities. Um, when I read this, I was thinking all about old um, Ravi Zacharias, his wife. You guys heard of this guy, Ravi Zacharias? Uh, great um, um, apologist that unfortunately died because uh, died and afterwards some shameful things emerged about him. But I heard it one day his wife said to him, um, she gave him a hug and she said to him, you've got the arms of a thinking man. Do you know what the arms of a thinking man look like? There's no muscle. He never works out. He just thinks the whole time. <laughs> That's what I was thinking when I read this. Anyways, let's read verse 22. Paul then stood up. Now he's in this meeting. He stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship. And this is what I am going to proclaim to you. He says there, you are very religious. The Greek word indicates you are too superstitious. And that's not in a negative way. Paul is not saying that. He's saying it in a positive way. You guys are more religious than most places. Paul is saying it in a positive way. I'm so glad to see this. He compliments them on their religiosity. He builds a base with them. He builds rapport with them. He establishes common ground. We're talking about a God here. And he compliments them for seeking a higher power, for seeking the Creator. He starts with where they are at and then leads them from there. And we've spoken about this before. When we're in conversation with people, we always meet them where they are at. But we don't leave them there. We lead them further. And then he says, I've, I saw this inscription to an unknown God. And that I found interesting. The Greek there is agnostos theos. Agnostos is where we get the word agnostic from. You don't know. You just don't know. So they have an, an altar to a God. They don't know who this God is. And they're worshiping this God. So, is it possible to worship a God you don't know? Well, it seems like it's possible. All right? So, these guys were actually quite considerate. They were thinking, okay, we're going to put up some idols here and make some altars to gods. And there's probably a God out there that we don't know. Let's put up an altar for Him as well. So, we can sort of worship Him and every day we'll bring Him a Coke. So, um, I think there's tremendous symbolism here. Um, they thought there might be some unknown God they don't know about. Paul saw that and said, well, here's my entry point. I'm going to use this to tell you about a God you don't know about. And Paul sort of attaches his God with that idol, with that altar. Because Paul knew it's just a thing. It doesn't really matter. All right? And notice how Paul speaks to them. He says to them, I know you worship this God, but you don't know who He is, so you are worshiping Him in ignorance. Let me tell you who this God is that you are worshiping. 
because you don't know him or understand him. So Paul's built a really good base with them because he starts off with complimenting them. And then he goes on to say, okay, but you, you, you're worshiping already this God. He's already assuming, look, we're actually in the same team in, to a certain extent. He's not just cutting them off. I want to suggest to you today that our churches are full of people who worship a God they don't know. They think they know, but they don't know. And here's a nice exercise for you to do. If there's a verse or verses that you could go to, which verses would you go to to, to tell you who this God is that we worship? Do you know who He is? How would you summarize Him? If anybody has a scripture, think about it while I read mine, and then you can read yours if you want to. I'm going to read you mine. This is a key verse for me. This is in Exodus chapter 34 where Moses is going up to the mountain. He's going to meet the God of the universe, the creator of the universe. God told him to make two stone tablets and bring it up with him to the mountain. And God appears to him on this mountain. He says in verse 5, Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. So God is coming down to Moses' level. They're on the mountain somewhere. And God's going to proclaim his name to Moses. And he passed in front of Moses, verse 6. And he proclaims, here God is saying who he is. God is going to give a description to Moses of who he is. He says the following, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God. Slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. This is God describing Himself. But then He goes on to say, yet He does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sins of the parents to the third and the fourth generation. When God describes himself, he does it so well. He says, I'm exceedingly compassionate and gracious, and I maintain my love. But at the same time, I'm just. And I punish the wicked. That's the God whom we serve. Remember our job. Our job is to know him and make him known. That's our job, in summary. We can't make him known if we don't know him. And that's sometimes the problem with evangelism. That's why we can't talk to people about him. Because we don't know him ourselves. How can you tell somebody about somebody that you don't know yourself? Anybody has a scripture they'd like to read to us? Anything that makes you think about God? Yeah. Love it. Beautiful. Yes, brother. Yes. Yes. 
that is exactly it. Because especially when we talk to people today, it's very difficult to reconcile yourself with a being that's floating in the sky. That's the mentality that we have. This is the power of Christianity that God breathes in. He comes and lives in a piece of flesh. Jesus Christ, he lives, in a, he lives in bodily form. We can resonate with that. And we've got four witnesses of his life. We can go read. Yeah, who's Jesus? I said to this lady today, you know what? Go home. Go home. And all you do is you go read about Jesus. Read about the man Jesus. And you will see in human language who God is. Okay? And then you decide, do you want to follow this man? And then you pray and you ask the God of heaven, say, Lord, I don't know if you're real or not, but if you are, please come and show yourself to me. And this poor lady started, uh, you know, tearing up. Because it's so simple. We've got to know who this guy is, Jesus. And when you know who he is, it will be so easy to follow him. He's incredible. Now Paul goes on and he, I wish I could witness him speaking here. He goes on to preach some of the most powerful truths about the God that we've come to worship tonight. In verse 24, he says, the God, our God. And the Greek says, he doesn't say the God. He says Theos. He assumes there's just a God. The God, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he's not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man, he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he's not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. And what Paul does here in a few words is he juxtaposes the true God against all the false gods and the idols that they worship. He says, this God, this unknown one, he is actually the creator. Okay? He is not a created God or a birth God. Many of the Greek and Roman gods, they were birthed somehow. So he's, he's juxtaposing this and he says, no, no, no. Everything comes from this God. He's not birthed. He's not created. And he doesn't live on earth because some of your gods, they live in earth and heaven. No, this God, he doesn't live on earth and he doesn't live in the heavens. He rules over it. Different. He rules over the space where your gods live. Because the Greeks believed that there were some gods that's in the earth. So he is too big and too powerful to live in a place that humans built. They had like temples and stuff for their gods. And so Paul is just saying, hey, this God, this unknown God, he's bigger. You can't build a house for him. Okay. Paul raises the bar here and quickly shows that this God is superior to to theirs. And in a, in a very neat and unthreatening way, so neat, he criticizes their paganism that it feels like he's kissing them. He's got a way of doing that. We can't feed him, he says. You can't feed this God. He doesn't need anything from us. He gives to people. He doesn't take from them. He's not dependent on people. In contrast to people who gave food to their gods. I've told you before about Thailand, where they put food for their gods. And I'm telling you now, many Greeks did the same for their gods and many Romans did the same for their gods. 
You don't come to the God, the, you don't come to the unknown God with a, a, a bowl of soup. Are you insane? He doesn't need nothing from you. Nothing at all. His goal is not to um, fight other gods, but to have us. Because many times if you read these, the, the Roman gods, the Greek gods, there's always like some type of fighting and warfare between the gods. And Paul is saying, no, 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 no. His goal was to place people over the face of the earth, put them in different places. Why? So that they could find me. So their agenda is different. The unknown God has got a different agenda, and it's you. Not fight other gods. He's the only God. And so he's really he's dismantling their whole religious system here. He's dismantling all their pagan gods um, over there. And he says we're all of one family because God made all people from one bloodline. Very interesting. And then he quotes, and this, is, this puts the, 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 the icing on top of the cake. He says to them, um, he, he quotes one of their own poets. That's crazy. He says, look, one of your own poets said this, man. One of your own poets spoke about this unknown God, the God that I am talking about right now. Incredible. You have an idol to this God. You have poems about this God. It's the same God that I'm talking about. Do you see how clever Paul is? He pulls their system into his theology. Absolutely incredible. This guy's a genius. So don't tell me, what did they accuse him of? Talking about foreign gods and foreign ideas. Xenos. Both instances, that's the word that's used. So Paul is essentially saying here, don't come tell me this is foreign. Your own poets talk about it, and you've got an idol to him. This is no foreign God. He's here. Your own poets have been speaking about him without you even knowing about it. It's not strange teachings. He's the creator of the universe, and you've been worshiping him the whole time. You don't even know about it. You've been worshiping a God you don't know. There's just a few things I want to point out here, a few applicable truths just in these verses. Number one, God doesn't need us. We need him. God didn't create us because... He needed anything from us. Sometimes we think that's how we worship. We worship it's like God needs me to bow down to Him. No, He doesn't. Listen carefully. If you and I don't ever exist and we never worship God, it's not going to change anything in Him. Whether we bow down to Him, come to church, whatever, it's not changing anything. He's perfectly happy and satisfied in eternity by Himself as the triune God. And you might ask the question, okay, but why did He create? Well, that's a whole other discussion for another day. But let me throw it out here. Because of love. He wanted somebody to love. Because that's what he's made of. The same reason why we have children is the same reason why he created. We have children because we want to love someone. And we want somebody to love us. That's why he created. He doesn't need anything from us. Number two, everybody needs God. He gives all people life, breath, and everything else the text says. Life means an opportunity to live. God gives that opportunity. Breath means breathing. The name of God is what? Yahweh. Yahweh. Breath. God is breath Himself. And He gives us everything else. Love, marriage, joy, taste buds. Thank you, Lord, for those. All these are from Him. Even if we don't acknowledge Him. He's obsessed with blessing the human race. Even if they don't acknowledge Him. Number three. God determines the timing and the place of our existence. That seems to be what he says here. Now, this is true, I think, 
um, ethnically. That's maybe the idea that Paul has here, that, that the nations of the earth are placed in time and space. But I also believe that it's true individually, my personal opinion. It is no coincidence that you live in sweet home in the year 2023. And the big question is, why do, we, why do we live where we live when we live there? If God places us in specific positions in time and space. The text tells us, so that we might reach out to Him. And perhaps find Him, because He's not far from us. He's an arm length, He's just an arm length away. We have been positioned at precisely the right place and time in God's great plan to have the greatest opportunity to find Him in free will. Fourthly, God is close enough to people to be touched without invading their space. And so God is close enough, we can just reach out and He's there, but He's not that close that He invades your space and in a sense forces you to come to Him. So God gives us space. Verse 29 to 32, Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent. For He has said today, when He will judge the world with justice by the man He has appointed, He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. Let's look at what Paul does in his whole argument. There's so much stuff in here. We've got just only a few minutes, but you can, oh, there's so much. You want to know how to prepare a sermon, you just go to Paul. I mean, it gives you a great outline. You want to know how to argument with somebody, you just go to Paul. Just this one sermon, and you can smash it. But look at what he does. First of all, uh, um, he, see, he says to them, your devotion is incredible. You guys are religious. You're too you're way more religious than anybody else. Well done, man. He builds good rapport with them. He points out some truth. At least you're thinking about God. At least you, you're trying to figure out who He is. Well done. That's step one. He builds a base. He builds rapport. He builds a bridge. And then he goes and he says, I want you to think about this. About this God. Who He really is. And how He's different than your God. Without actually saying it like that. Imagine for a moment who this person is. He appeals to their reason, to their thinking. And at the same time, he appeals to the call of God to want to connect with people. And so he's including emotion into this reasoning, and he includes their own poetry. So he pulls their tradition and their culture into it. He says, you can't get loose from this. Credible argumentation. And then thirdly, what does he do here now? <laughs> this is the hardest part. He says to them straight. But still in a nice way, but straight. You have the wrong idea, I'm sorry. The God of heaven and earth is not made out of gold. I'm sorry to tell you this, but that's the truth. Uh, he, he says, you, you got it wrong. And then he says, and you know what? Everybody has to repent and that includes you. Okay? And then he says to them, um, because he's, he's going to judge you. And the guy that's going to judge you is the one that was raised from the dead. Jesus Christ. So in his third step, he says, okay, it's time to take off the gloves and be honest and in love. You guys need to repent. There's a point in our conversations with people where we need to speak the truth straight. And stop 
handling gloves, using gloves, I mean. You are wrong, you need to repent, otherwise judgment will be uncomfortable. That's essentially what he's saying to them. Paul is tricking. Your poets, look at what he says. He says there, therefore, since we are God's offspring, in verse 29, he's referring back to the poets, right? So he's tricky. He says, your poets, so he refers to them, your poets say we are God's offspring. So, in other words, he's, he's in a sense, putting words in their mouths and saying, well, you agree with me, and we are offspring um, of, of God. And if we are his offspring, this God, this unknown God, um, then don't you think it's a bit silly to assume that we could shape him into gold or silver? Because we are humans and we can make idols, um, but we have been created by God, so how can what is created go and create the guy who created them? I hope you can see the circular reasoning there. So he's using their own poets and the silliness of their theology against them. I hope you understand what I'm saying. He's messing with their minds. And he's putting them in their place. And then he says to him, repent, meta noeo, to think differently. He's helping them to think differently by giving them solid reasoning. This repentance means to reconsider, to change your mind for better. And I think sometimes we look at repentance as a negative thing. It's not a negative thing. It's a positive thing because you're going to think better after you've done it. Or while you're doing it, you're thinking better. The God who created the heavens and the earth deserves better devotion than food, a temple, and an idol. He deserves your devotion as His created being. And then He says there will be a judgment. Jesus will do it because Jesus will do this judgment. This person that you think is just a peasant that died on the cross, unfortunately, He's going to be the guy that's going to judge. And the reason is because He was resurrected. That, ladies and gentlemen, is the stumbling block of for all people. Even this lady I spoke to today here in the back of the church. That is the stumbling block. The resurrection. Because you can argue against Christianity. You can argue against its philosophy. You can argue against churches. You can argue against Christianity. You can find a thousand reasons why you don't want to be a Christian. And after all the argumentation, you still have to deal with one fact. That in Jerusalem right now is an empty tomb. You've got to get over that. You've got to provide a way to explain that away. And it's, it's unexplainable. There's no way to get around the resurrection. And that's what Paul is pointing to here. Jesus Christ was resurrected. His body's not on the earth. And you can go check for yourself. Go to Jerusalem yourself. And I'm willing to die for this, Paul would say. We need to remember Christianity exists because of the resurrection. If Jesus was ne never resurrected, Christianity wouldn't have existed. This is why we are here, because of the resurrection. All right, 32 to 34, then we'll close off. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on the subject. At that, Paul left the council some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Arapagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. There's a bunch of people that got converted. 
Now, the text says that after um, he had done that, after he had spoken about the resurrection, immediately people were up in arms. That's the dividing line. The resurrection is the dividing line. You believe it or you don't. Now, what's pretty cool here is that it seems like there was three responses. Some people mocked him. That's actually what the Greek says. The NIV says they sneered at him. No, they mocked him. You're crazy, man. What's wrong with you coming up with these stupid ideas? When you talk about the resurrection, some people will look at you and they'll mock you. They'll mock the idea. It's just the way that it is. Some people don't want to accept it. But there's another group of people, and they said, we'd like to hear more. So they haven't really made up their minds yet. They're sort of on the fence, but they're willing to talk about it and, and listen a little bit more. Sometimes when you talk about Christ and the resurrection, some people will say, you know, I'm not convinced yet, but I'm willing to listen and I'm willing to talk. That's fine. And then there's a third group of people here in this text, verse 34. And actually the Greek word there is interesting. It's kolao. They kolaoed to him, which means glue. The same word that's used in Acts chapter 8 with, the, um, with uh, Philip with the, sticking himself to the, to the chariot of the Ethiopian eunuch. Some people, when you speak about the resurrection, will glue themselves to you for life. Because you're the one that brought them the news. And that is what we look forward to. And out of that whole council, one of the council members glued himself to Paul. I don't know how many hundreds there were. Out of the hundreds of people that you speak to in your life about Christ, some will sneer at you. Others will say, good idea, we can talk about it. And there might just be one that will glue themselves to you. And not because of you, but because you carried the message to them. And that's the people that we look forward to, that we hold out for. We've got one minute left. Anybody would like to add a comment or question or addition? Yes, brother. Yes, brother. 